qualified to satisfy you in any way you want me to qualified to satisfy you in any way you want me to qualified to satisfy you Good morning and welcome to episode 761 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I'm Ben Lindbergh of ESPN, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Hello. This is going to be one of those episodes where we just start talking and talk for a while until it's over, and then we mm. end it. I guess that describes every episode, but what I mean is we have a few different things that we want to touch on. None of them is really a full episode on itself, so we'll see where this goes. So this is a big off-season news day. Neither of us is really in off-season news mode yet, I don't think, as we discussed with Andy yesterday. This is qualifying offer day. It's the beginning of free agency deadline night, so maybe we'll get into that more next week. R.J. Anderson's top 50 free agents list came out for Baseball Prospectus. One interesting thing to mention is that this year's free agent crop seems like a lot better than next year's free agent crop. I was just talking to Craig Goldstein, and he pointed that out. And if you look at the list of this year's top free agents, there are a bunch of marquee people. RJ's top 10, I guess I'll read out, is Price, Hayward, Granke, Upton, Chris Davis, Johnny Cueto, Cespedes, Gordon, Zimmerman, and Ben Zobrist. Those are all pretty big names, pretty great players. If you look at next year's class, and obviously this could be winnowed down further by extensions between now and then, there's really only, I I mean, I guess there are a couple guys who would crack that top 10 if they were free agents right now, but it's Strasburg is the the big guy at 28, uh, 28 years old when he's a free agent. And that could be a huge deal if he has a good year, if he has a injury-plagued year, who knows. So Strasburg, and then there's like a big gap between him and the next starters available, who are Andrew Kashner and Clay Buckholtz, who are two other guys who could go either way in 2016. And then the position player crop is really thin. There are some. Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Yeah. Thinner than that? Yeah, I think wow. it's like Edwin Encarnacion, who'll be 34, and Jose Bautista, who'll be 36, and then Carlos Gomez and Justin Turner. I mean, these are the... Those three don't... The first three you named don't seem that thin. I mean, they are older. They're old, but, yeah. But, I mean, Bautista is like a top five hitter in the game right he now. Yes, yeah. Now, who knows what... Uh, who knows? Maybe he'll, maybe he'll show age this year, but... He's like a top five hitter in the game, and Encarnacion's like a top 12 hitter in the game, and Gomez is like a top 12 overall player in the game. Yeah, well, he wasn't this year. I mean, he had injury stuff going on this year, so maybe he recovers from that and is great. But but yeah, all of these guys will be over 30, well over 30, which is not really... I mean, you know, Hayward is young. Hayward is unusually young for a, a top free agent, but... I don't know. There's just not much depth, it doesn't seem like. After you get by the guys I just named, it's all kind of complimentary players, like nice players, but certainly not stars. And I don't know what kind of deal a 36-year-old Jose Bautista would get, but 
if he if he has another nice season, I'm sure he'd still get a substantial deal, but it wouldn't be a long-term mega contract because he's 36, so maybe it would be four or five years or something. Anyway, that seems like it's the best that it gets, and maybe some of those guys sign extensions, and obviously, like, there'll be, you know, guys who have surprisingly good seasons next year and turn out to be better free agents than we think right now, but it looks weak from what we can see now, so... If and you really, are, yeah. really, just just glancing at it, almost most even the guys who could conceivably do that, ten are are fairly old. Like yeah. I'm not, sh- I'm not sure there's really like a Chris Davis here, mm-hmm. who uh, could could break out, in a way. And I, I don't, just curious, what do you think Chris Davis would have gotten if he'd been a free agent last year? I mean, he basically he'd had two, you know, two okay years for a corner guy, around one superstar year that. No one was really sure what to make of at the time mm-hmm. and looked like the outlier season. Yeah, I I don't think he would have gotten much at all last year. He was like a below average hitter. More or less than, um, right, exactly. So like more or less than Nelson Cruz, for instance. Less. And so now... Cruz was like, coming off a big year. I mean, no one believed he would repeat it the way he did, but he was coming off the career year. So I'm now looking at... Um, at the Fangraphs crowd uh-huh. prediction for Davis, and they have him at five and a hundred uh, mm-hmm. this year. Uh, Dave Cameron actually goes much higher than that in his own prediction, and I kind of feel like I would go over that too. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, he's going to be a thirty-year-old first baseman who's had a forty-seven and a fifty-three home run season in the last three years. Yeah, and you know what they say about power these days? <laughs> it's in short supply. By the way, how about how like nobody says that anymore now because the Royals, right? Now it's all about how now it's everybody talks about the exact opposite. How now in a low power environment you got to get guys like the Royals get who put the ball in play and keep the line moving and you can't go for the home run and you have to be able to go first to third and going for power is now like the the dumb thing to do. Like it just just switched because a team got good. Like yeah. that's it. <laughs> that's true. All yeah. right. Anyway, so yeah, Chris Davis. Uh, I mean, Chris Davis maybe tripled what mm-hmm. his contract will be yeah. with this year. And so anyway, which is to, I'm saying like I don't I like there are guys on this list who you could see having you know a big year at age 31 or 32, but they're still going to be 32 or 33 mm-hmm. when they hit free agency. Like Trumbo's not going to be young. When, if he happens to have a massive year this year, mm-hmm. or um, so on, I guess the probably the the best bet for a, a guy who we look at radically different in a year would be Pedro Alvarez. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at this point, he's like a non-tender candidate. Yeah. Uh, so and and so he'll be. I think he'll be thirty if he mm-hmm. hits free agency. And but yeah, there's not really a lot of. Guys that you're maybe Cameron Mabin could still yeah, have a yeah. Although then he's got a club option which would get picked up right if he were good. Yeah. So the takeaway maybe is that if you are a team that is two years away, then maybe you buy now with that in mind. So Craig was suggesting, for instance, that a team like the Phillies, who maybe have a new TV contract coming up, and maybe they're a couple of years away from being relevant again maybe you buy some free agents this year because there aren't going to be any next year 
So I don't know how many teams fit into that category or how many other teams could be a, a Phillies in that respect. But if we see some weird deals this offseason where we think, why are they spending all that money now on this guy who they're probably not going to be a great team in 2016, then probably makes sense to keep in mind the 2016 to 17 free agent class. And that could be why. That could be why teams are buying before they are ready to contend. Mm. So something to keep in mind. And mm. the qualifying offer stuff, again, is like probably the, the least interesting kind of baseball news other than maybe arbitration. Arbitration is probably less interesting when teams exchange figures and they find midpoints. And we have to talk about that in January or February. But it seems like there's going to be more qualifying offers than there ever have been. In the past three off-seasons, which is how long we've had the current collective bargaining agreement, there have been 34 qualifying offers extended to free agents. None of them, as we know, has been accepted. And this year, it seems like we're going to see a record number of qualifying offers extended. The previous one-year record is 13 players. And this seems like a pretty deep free agent class. So in various previews that were done, it seems like at least 20, maybe more than 20 players will get these qualifying offers. And yet, even though more and more of them are going to be handed out, it still seems like none of them really is all that likely to accept. I mean, a guy like Marco Estrada, who has received a qualifying offer, which maybe not everyone would have predicted Still, if you're Marco Estrada, are you going to take the $15.8 million one-year deal? It seems like qualifying offers are just never, ever going to get accepted. And I know that you think that the entire idea of free agent compensation is really stupid and ineffective. And I guess the fact that these qualifying offers never get accepted just sort of drives that home. Yeah. I mean, they're the worst. They're the dumbest thing. (laughs) right that's all but ian kennedy will accept yeah i guess ian kennedy might accept let's see so ian kennedy is coming wow i this seems this seems i mean well this is like michael kadire last year Uh right where we were sure that michael michael kadire would accept and then somebody gave him a contract afterward yeah it's just made it wise for million is not a lot of money now it's like you know, yeah, maybe. but Ian Ian Kennedy, right? Like he's he's not only is he is I mean not only is it to me it seems like kind of a stretch to call him, you know, a twelve million dollar average annual value guy, mm-hmm. which is maybe like what sort of multi year contract you'd have to get to make it worth turning that down, but he's coming off you know, maybe arguably a career worst season in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And he hasn't actually been good in four years, but you know, there's bound, there's enough there he was that good he good in 2014. He was, he was useful yeah. in 2014. Well, he had a go three, farther than that. He had a three, six, three ERA in Petco. It, yeah. you know, I mean, it's, it's, I don't know what we might just have different ideas about good. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I'd take, I would definitely take him on my team. And if it were coming off of last year, then I could see turning that down. I would expect him to get, after that year, I would have expected him to get, you know, to be able to command maybe 3 and 36 or something like that. But right now, I mean, he's a he's a disaster, isn't he? 
He was well, a disaster. Last year was a disaster year, and he's had a couple of those. And, you know. Yeah, I mean, he's made 30 starts in six straight years, and that's something. And he's only 30 years old. And he struck people out this year. He was like one of those weird Padres home run rate people. <laughs> you would think that the Padres would, their pitching problem would not be giving up home runs, but suddenly he was giving up a ton of home runs and James Shields was giving up a ton of home runs. So if you think that was somewhat fluky that he had such a high home run rate, and he has at home, had, at home by the way, yeah. he, it wasn't as bad on the road. Yeah, it was not nearly as bad on the road. That's strange, and and he's had some high home run rates before, so it's not kind of his deal out yeah. of nowhere. So, eh, I mean, he still strikes out people and has decent control, and he pretty much always makes his starts. So, that's something. I feel like people would give him a multi-year deal for that, even though he's coming off probably his worst full year or second worst full year. But not a multi-year deal that comes with a pick. Right. That costs them a pick. True. I mean, maybe they would still. But, like, ah, geez. I mean, doesn't Ian Kennedy seem like the kind of guy who's going to be available in May if he's got a pick attached to him? Maybe. Yeah, so maybe he'll... I, I can't remember if it's a good year or not for the draft. I can never remember that. But that matters, too. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't think people have a real sense of that yet. I think it's better than last year, but I don't think it's any kind of crazy good year. There's no real consensus top guy or, or, or anything. So so who were, so let's see. So Mike Exisa did a qualifying offer uh, preview in mid-October, and so he had in his definitely group Chris Davis and Dexter Fowler, Alex Gordon, Granke, Hayward, Iwakuma, Wei-Yin Chen, Kendrick, Lackey, Samarja, Upton, Weeders, Zimmerman. And then in the likely group, he had Brett Anderson, Ian Desmond, Gallardo, Kennedy, Daniel Murphy, Colby Rasmus, Denard Spann. And then he had some unlikely guys, and at least one of those unlikely guys, Marco Estrada, has already gotten one. So I guess Kennedy will be the uh, referendum on whether anyone will ever accept a qualifying offer because he seems like probably the best candidate yet certainly the best candidate this year who we know has gotten one all right so maybe we'll circle back and talk about those things next year next week when we know about who has gotten the offers and which players are free agents so there was a trade maybe we could talk about that for four minutes the Mariners and Rays made a trade, and it sort of took everyone by surprise that a multi-year deal happened so quickly, I suppose, but none of the names in the deal is a big name. So it's a little interesting if you dig a little deeper. So the Rays got Brad Miller, the shortstop, and Logan Morrison, first baseman, and right-handed reliever Danny Farquhar. And the Mariners got Nate Carnes, the starter, and outfielder Boog Powell, the the second, and C.J. Riefenhauser, left-handed reliever. So each guy got uh, each team got a reliever, and each team got a sort of decent hitter. Logan Morrison is like a seems like a classic Rays first base D.H. type who's just sort of average-ish maybe 
so the interesting players are Brad Miller and Nate Carnes. And this is a case where both teams are sort of dealing from depth in that the Mariners still have Kettle Marte and Chris Taylor. So they have some infield shortstop types and the Rays have lots of young starting pitching. So I guess the interesting question about these guys is just there are multiple interpretations of how good each of them is. And Dave Cameron did a good job of laying out what the different interpretations are. So the Brad Miller question is whether he can be a shortstop, because if he can be a shortstop, then he's pretty decent. He's like a league average hitter if you park adjust for for Safeco. So if he could play defense, that's obviously a good thing. And I guess scouts have always kind of been down on him playing shortstop full-time, and he's one of those guys who the stats sort of like as a shortstop, like a maybe average or slightly below average shortstop in ultimate zone rating over 2,000 or so major league innings. So that's just sort of a stats versus scouts kind of discussion that we had with Johnny Peralta maybe when he signed, and he's a guy who people don't think of as a good shortstop but always grades out as an average shortstop or better. So if he's a decent shortstop, then he seems like he's probably the best player in the deal because Nate Carnes kind of falls into the Ian Kennedy category, I guess, in that he strikes people out, but he gives up lots of home runs. And he has always given up lots of home runs. So I don't know, maybe the Mariners looked at him and look at his XFIP or something and his home run per fly ball rate and think that he'll be better than he's been home run rate wise. But he has in 731 major league hitters, he's given up 27 home runs as a Ray and a national, which are not great home run parks. And if you look at his minor league home run rates, they're also bad. Well, so, they're bad. They're bad once you get to double A. Yeah, right. they were really they were really good before that. Yeah, which is not any kind of point in his favor. Right. Yeah. So he seems like maybe he fits the profile of a guy who just you know kind of like the Joe Blanton. Type. I was gonna say I was <laughs> just then I was thinking Joe Blanton yeah. and uh, another guy that Jerry Depoto got quickly after taking over a team. I think. Yeah, that's true. So I don't know. Maybe you can. Say that Jerry Depoto's weakness is like good strikeout guys who give up home runs or something, and, and maybe that will work better in Safeco than it did in his prior stints. But by the way, did you Joe see Blanton? What, yeah. I know. Did you right? see what Joe Blanton did? He did this year. I know. <laughs> I was just gonna. What do is that? that? Too. <laughs> I don't know, man. And the crazy thing is that even like he was he was doing this for the Kansas City bullpen in a smaller. Smaller sample, but he was pitching really well in the Kansas City bullpen, and they basically just let him walk, like, in the middle of a year. Yeah. Because uh, they have a lot of good relievers, I guess. But, yeah, I mean, Joe Blanton is Joe Blanton is every bit the story that Trevor Cahill is as a yeah. guy you'd completely forgotten might be a good pitcher dominating mm-hmm. in relief. Yeah, so Joe Blanton didn't pitch in the majors in two. I mean, he was what, terrible in the big leagues in 2013, ERA over six with a good strikeout to walk ratio and tons of homers. 
And then 2014, he was pitching for Oakland in AAA, and he had an ERA over five. Again, good strikeout-to-walk ratio. And then, yeah, so this year with Kansas City, and I guess with Kansas City it was sort of the same. He was giving up home runs, but good strikeouts and walks. And then he went to Pittsburgh and pitched 21 games out of the bullpen with a 1.57 ERA, one home run in 34 and a third innings, and struck out over a batter per inning and good walk rate again. So I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I uh, I also don't know. I'm going to see whether he was good as a relief. Occasionally he would pitch in relief. No. So like with the Angels, he pitched in relief eight times and had an 8.64 ERA with five homers in 16 innings. Uh-huh. So he was every bit as bad. So this isn't just about, I mean, maybe it, Maybe it's about getting used to it, but this isn't just about moving a bad starter into relief and having him be awesome, which is like all that happens in baseball. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like you know there's got to be a little more to it than that. Uh, yeah, 57 innings in relief, 10 strikeouts per nine, four homers in almost six innings in a 2.4, 2.04 ERA. Before that, in his career, he had 32 and a third innings in relief and 26 runs allowed, which is horrible, right? (laughs) And struck out, you know, like six-ish per nine and allowed eight homers in 32 innings as a reliever. (laughs) Huh. So this, so we can't give this, give full credit to Ray Searage, right? Because this started in Kansas City. Uh, I believe that's the case. Uh I believe this might be, uh, this might be a hap situation where it's easy to but like yeah he was quietly pitching pretty well in relief for kansas city uh he so in he pitched uh he threw 15 innings in relief for them with a 1.8 era one homer and uh you know strikeout per in his usual control and then they moved him into starting and he had uh four starts two of them bad two of them eh, okay two pretty good And then they moved him back to relief, and he had one disaster outing, but eight innings in those four outings, 10 strikeouts, no walks, 4.5 ERA, and then then he walked. Then he was purchased. I wonder if there are any starters who wash out of the game without trying. Having having tried it? Yeah. I mean, at this point, it seems like you would want to try it with any starter. Any, Any starter who struggles is potentially a good setup guy so well casimir never got the chance uh casimir partly it's that he collapsed so quickly and so utterly yeah that they didn't have time to even like he was he was coming in and not being able to get through you know to get one out in the first Mm -hmm. in in his rehab starts and then he was gone uh but he never did get the chance and i always wondered what he would have been like uh, if he had, uh, probably horrible at the time. Yeah. I think he needed to go through some things. Uh, but uh, he he almost washed out of the game without that chance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I, I don't know. We even we tried that with the Stompers. There was a starter who was struggling, and we tried him in the bullpen, and we were, like, crossing our fingers that he, <laughs> and, would, yeah. he would suddenly, like, throw five miles per hour faster or something. Didn't yeah. work out in our case, but we tried it. We tried it a couple times actually yeah and yeah it's like it's sort of a weird situation because you're you sort of 
like you you in the back of your mind you think okay maybe it'll take him a little bit to adjust to this but it's like the first pitch you look at the gun yeah. and you're like oh no okay <laughs> yeah <laughs> like you don't need 12 innings or anything like that it's like oh he's throwing the same all right yeah all right. and there, i don't know maybe there would be guys who just don't that can't get into that like just put it all out there mindset right away and you really need to drill it into them for a while that no this is different from starting you don't need to hold anything back but but yeah it seems like if it's don't throw your third pitch yeah don't throw your third pitch right yeah yeah but it seems like usually if it's gonna happen you can tell fairly quickly although not in joe blanton's case evidently all right so last thing i guess unless there's anything you want to talk about we never talked about alex anthopoulos leaving toronto because it happened in the midst of the playoffs when we had games to talk about, and now we don't. So this was a case where Anthopolis seems like maybe the first victim of the title inflation going on in front offices that we've talked about, or this new arrangement where the president of baseball operations is actually the GM, or what we used to think of as the GM, and the guy who's called a GM now is really a glorified assistant GM or something. And so this has happened in a bunch of teams all of a sudden, and it seems like there are multiple reasons for it. It's A lot of it is just being able to keep your employees or get talented employees from other teams because teams will allow you to interview for a position that is seen as higher ranking or more important than the current position. And so if a guy is an assistant GM and you are offering a GM job, then the convention is for teams to allow that person to interview, even if the GM job for one team is really not all that different from the AGM job with another team. So we keep seeing this happen, and mostly it seems like when it happens, everyone involves understands the power structure and knows what they're getting into and realizes that if they're going to be a GM under a president of baseball operations, then they're not going to have the final say on all the baseball moves. But this is a little different in Toronto, where Anthopolis was the GM and had the old-fashioned or the traditional GM job, where he was the one who had the say in things. And we knew for a while that the Blue Jays were looking for a new president, and they were trying to lure Dan Duquette the past offseason that that didn't end up happening but they were able to hire mark shapiro from cleveland who was the indians former gm and then their president of baseball operations or, or or just president and was largely concerned with business aspects and then he came over to toronto and wanted to be involved in the baseball side again except alex anthopoulos was already there so the interesting thing I guess about this is the meeting that was reported by Bruce Arthur in the Star about the first time a face-to-face meeting with the senior members of the Jays front office where Shapiro said that he, I'm quoting, strongly disagreed with some of the deadline choices that sent prospects out. That seems like a tough case to make, I guess, given what happened with the Blue Jays in the second half in the playoffs. I mean, it's something that Maybe you could have said at the time that the deals were made, but I don't think a single Blue Jays fan wishes that those moves hadn't been made to bring in Price and Tulewitzki and upgrade. And so 
it seems like if you're coming in after the Blue Jays just put together maybe the best team in baseball and made the playoffs for the first time in decades, that would be a, a tough position to take. But maybe it doesn't even matter what Shapiro said, because if he wanted to be involved in the baseball side of things and Anthopoulos wanted to be the final say, then probably he wouldn't have been happy anyway. And evidently they lowballed him with a a two-year deal with an option at first, and then they tried to give him a five-year deal, but by then he had already decided to move on. And there doesn't really seem to be an obvious place for him to go because all the teams have GMs, and I guess there are other places where he could go in and, and be a president, and then maybe it would be kind of the same thing that happened to him where the GM on that team would not be happy about him coming in to be the president. So... Teams are sort of sorting out how this new front office hierarchy works. You know what would be cool is if we lived in a world where you could start your own team and like not necessarily start your own team and have it like certainly not have it just join the majors, but you ought to be able to have like, you know, your disruptive, your industry disrupting team, like, you know, just Uh build your own Tesla kind Uh of company and then, you know, work your way in. And once you once you get good enough, then they have to let you in. And there's like it'd be cool if Alex Anthopoulos could be like, I I hate all these guys. I'm gonna start my own team. Yeah. <laughs> and just like he could barnstorm and collect awesome players, and then gradually be one of the 30 best teams <laughs> in the world, and be in this. It, it kind of sort of sucks that you have to work in this very tiny little group of oxygen. Uh, but, uh, I forget what, what we were going to say, but I, yeah, I wonder, I mean, he, it's hard to say who is president qualified these days. Cause we don't, we don't really know what, we don't know what the standards are for being team president. Mm-hmm. Uh, like we don't really know what you're doing. I guess if team president is just one of the 30 people in the world, most qualified to be GM, mm-hmm. uh, then yes, he is one of the, I think he is one of the 30 most qualified people in the world to be GM. Maybe he takes a year off, and then uh, when Walt Jockety steps down for good next year, maybe he goes over and takes over Cincinnati's presidency. Yeah. Because uh, that'll be a kind of an inexperienced GM over there. Right. And uh, who in is need a, of, a son of an owner? He is the son. He is. He is the son of an owner. Which it's is. True. It's. Uh, I mean, for all we know, he could be great. <laughs> you know, Dick Williams, it, who is it, uh, the, <laughs> the GM of the Reds. Like, if you are. If you are great, then it's almost bad to be the son of the owner because we just assume that if you are the son of the owner, then obviously you only got the job because you are the son of the owner, but maybe not. It sounds... I think that in in Dick Williams' case, it sounds worse than it is because he has put in his time. Yeah. But it's also worse than it needs to be. Uh-huh. Uh, and yes, I agree that like, it's always a bad sign. Like, you know what, if you're, if you're the son of an owner and you're qualified to be the GM, uh, get some other team's GM position. Yeah. <laughs> like, like then you prove it. Yeah. Like I've always had this feeling that, um, like, you know how sometimes you hear about, like you'll read an, a, a profile of a pop star in uh, Rolling Stone and they always talk about, like they want to establish their musical bona fides. And so they always like, there's always that part where they're like, and he or she writes his or her own songs. Yeah. And you're like, ooh, la la, <laughs> writes his or her own. But then I realized that, in fact, if you want to know whether a person, a pop star, is more than just the the face of 
uh, some like uh, corporate vision of a pop star. You have to see if they write other people's songs. Mm. Like Taylor Swift wrote other people's songs. Bruno Mars wrote other people's songs. Those are talented songwriters because other people wanted them to write their songs for them. Yeah. Uh, whereas a lot of the ones who quote unquote wrote their own songs, yeah, they're credited. They, they have a credit with like five know. other people. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So uh, if you want to prove that you're GM qualified, then yeah, convince the Blue Jays to hire you mm -hmm. is probably a, a. But anyway, I like I said, he's he. he it is not a. Uh, it's not an absurd like given the resume, it's it's not an absurd hiring. If you took away. If you took away the uh, the son of, uh, there wouldn't be anything shocking about that press release. You're right. It it almost looks worse if you're qualified uh, when your dad is the boss. Right. Okay. Can I say one thing about Mike Trout? Sure. 14 hours ago, Mike Trout tweeted, oh, right. Baylor, Baylor QB is legit, uh -huh. and uh, with an exclamation point. And this is a Mike Trout penned tweet. This is not a retweet. And there's no space between legit and exclamation point. Yeah. And I have been anxiously awaiting his follow-up to see whether that was a typo uh -huh. or whether it's new. And if it is new, then it will be interesting to see uh, whether he is, uh, has uh, hired somebody to at least uh, help. Like, that seems like pretty safe to say that Baylor QB is legit exclamation point is a classic Mike Trout tweet. Like, yeah. I don't think I don't think he's, <laughs> he's having that ghostwritten. But he might have somebody who is posting for him. I will also note that Mike Trout fairly recently, I don't know how recently, it seems to me quite recently though, uh, changed his biopic. And it might be the just about the best athlete biopic out there. <laughs> and it's really good. Like it's, it's a picture of him standing on home plate, his back to the camera, holding up a bat uh, like over his head with his hand on each end of the bat. And you see his jersey, his number 27. He's standing there with good posture and a Mike Trout body. And there are like 40 photographers with cameras all kneeling on the grass behind home plate mm -hmm. pointing at him. And it's really, it's great composition. It's very meta. It's very, there's, you know, you could stare at it for a long time. And it's, I mean, I, I'm not going to go deep into analyzing it, but I think you could go deep into analyzing all the different levels of which this is like the great photo of a modern baseball athlete in a Twitter <laughs> biopic. Uh -huh. So just, uh, I don't know if he chose that or not. Usually a, a rule of thumb I've found is that if it is a published photo, they didn't choose it. If it is an unpublished photo, they did choose it. And I don't know if this is a published photo or not. It's obviously not a photo he took. It's not a mm -hmm. selfie or anything like that. So I don't know, but it's uh, it's a great picture and it shows great taste by whoever whoever chose it. All right. So something to watch over the weekend. And his last, uh, so on October 29th, he had a space before exclamation point tweet. And then his next one with an exclamation point was, yeah, November 5th with no space. So the next tweet with an exclamation point will be telling. I mean, it's almost like uh, Moses handing down the Ten Commandments to like a crowd of Israelites below him <laughs> is yeah. what it kind of looks like. Like it's like he is addressing, like he is a God addressing a congregation or something addressing a something. I yeah. don't know. That, like, like I said, there's many levels that I'm not going to go into, but it's, uh, it's beautiful. All right. So we've talked enough. Surprisingly, maybe we won't talk about the fact that there's going to be a cricket match played in Dodger Stadium or the fact that there's a golf course with 
sand traps in Petco Park, which as someone pointed out in the Facebook group is pretty close to a pit, but we're not going to talk about those. We're going to end the show here. You can send us emails for next week at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. Join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild and rate and review the show on iTunes and support our sponsor, the play index by going to baseballreference.com and using the coupon code VP to get the discounted price of $30 on a one year subscription. We have a fun show lined up for Monday, so we will be back then. 